Hey everybody, welcome back to the Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast. I'm your co-host today, Dr. Mike Akinfor, and today I have the pleasure of having with me Jason Seib. Jason, how are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Jason's written, my pleasure, Jason's written a phenomenal book, and we're going to dive into this. Let me read his bio for you guys, and then I know you're going to love this interview. Jason Seib is the creator of the popular Alt-Shift Diet, the author of Body Beliefs, Women, Weight Loss, and Happiness, co-host of the popular Alt-Shift podcast, a national speaker, trainer, and fat loss coach. His passion is guiding normal people to extraordinary levels of health and fitness. Marrying his extensive knowledge of fitness and nutrition with his love of psychology, he has built his career by helping thousands of women change their perspective and find a healthy, sustainable path to their goals. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, that was, this, is a, this is an honor. This is a blast. I, I, I heard you on, on our friend Rob Wolf's podcast, and your book is exactly, I think, what our audience has been looking for, I want to say their whole lives, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of how-to, but not, the, not what's inside. So mm-hmm. I, I want to get into this. Could you, could you tell folks about your, your journey? How did you get here? Well, um... You know, I could bore you with all the details of going through, you know, being a trainer and uh, and then, you know, fat loss coach and and all of this stuff that led me down. But, I, you know, if we're here to talk about about body beliefs, the the way I came to this piece was just working in fat loss for for years and seeing an industry that would look at people and go, here's what you do. And they would hand them a protocol. And most of the time, by far, most of the time, the protocols were garbage. They would get people results two, for two to six weeks, and those people would lose weight and and then gain it right back. But in the meantime, while they lost that weight, they would tell five of their friends, and the author would be you know, multiple generations into their friend's money before this original person failed, and then the original person would blame themselves anyway, and so this is a fantastic industry for selling snake oil and sleeping on giant piles of money. But I had worked really hard to create something that actually really did work, and that dream come true was this eye-opening experience for me that people were – people aren't failing always because of protocols, and it dawned on me that if you created a protocol that worked like a, a, a magic wand – but it still had to be applied over a length of time, you know, say two or three months. If it was pretty much guaranteed to produce, you know, a supermodel body, a minimum of 80% of those people would still fail. And that is because of the psychology behind all this. It's because of all of the reasons that people trip up, and we're going to get into that, I'm sure. But I got together with um, a, uh, a gentleman named Robert Beeswastiner who is a um, a positive psychologist. His father is Ed Diener, and if there's any psychologists listening to this, they know exactly who Ed Diener is because I believe right now he is the 19th most cited psychologist in, in uh, history with Freud being number one, and Robert is a massive force in his own right. And uh, we started brainstorming, and we've done that for – over three years now, really, really digging into all of these things like intrinsic and extrinsic motivations and internal loci of control and 
uh, the the things like hedonic treadmills and the things that people tell themselves as they fall apart, and then looking at you know the difference between doing and practicing and people facing these things like a challenge. And there was so so much here, and I knew eventually there was going to be a book, and that book is Body Beliefs. So. Awesome, yeah. It's um, uh, you have uh, a chock full. I have notes. I've got scribbles. Um, I, I know we're not going to be able to get to everything that I have written down, but I, I want to hit some of those highlights. And you actually covered two of them that I want to get into. But the first thing that struck me is what you stated was my message is and will always be love yourself enough to change for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. So the right reason isn't I have uh, my reunion coming up. <laughs> right. Or or even, you know, to take that a step further, the right reason is never going to be extrinsic. Like I when I lose weight, p- other people will give me the approval that I want and then I will be fulfilled as a human in some way, shape or form. Uh, that's the biggest lie that that people typically women or what I work with almost exclusively are telling themselves. And it's just wrong. If you can't get to a point. I guess the way to to sum this up the best is the difference between an intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is um, if you are if you found yourself trapped on a desert island or you were suddenly let's let's do this one. If you were the last person on Earth and you just decided that, well, screw it. Now I don't have to do any of this crap. There's nobody around to see if my butt's big. You are completely extrinsically motivated. You're there's no you're, you're doing none of this for you which means all of it is a burden. You're going, God, I have to put myself through this stuff that I hate so that when I go out into the world, I will get better approval. My pants will get smaller. People will like me. People, you know, all of these motivations, they never carry you to the finish line because every single day you're tempted to deviate, sometimes dozens of times a day. And every one of the decisions that you're making are decisions you wish you didn't have to make. If we could give you a lamp and you rubbed it and a genie popped out, you would rather just wish that your body shape right now was what everybody on earth thought was the perfect body. That way you could quit doing all of this crap. So the fact that you're feeling better, you're sleeping better, your head's better, your mood, your sex drive, your skin, your hair, all of these other things that go on a list along with weight loss – when we get somebody really healthy, none of those things matter to you at all. It's if I'm smaller, people will like me better. And those that that is a motivation that carries virtually nobody to the finish line. As a matter of fact, you can't even get to the finish line because you might be able to get a body down to the shape you want, but you can't fix a body you hate. So when you get down to that size six jeans, you just whip your magnifying glass out and step closer to the mirror. Absolutely. And that's you hit the nail right on the head. That's exactly what happens. Yeah, nobody ever gets there. I've nope. never seen it. Nope. Not once in my career have I ever seen somebody that hated their body, change their body, and then get the get get to a place where they loved it. The the thing is, is that this is what the majority of the women are saying when they come to me. They're going, I think about my body multiple times an hour. If I catch my reflection in a in a mirror or I don't wear just the right clothes that day, I'm insecure. When I walk into a room and people look at me, I tend to think, oh God, they're all judging me. I don't have a ton of confidence. My sex drive is low. I've got basically all of these psychological issues that haunt me all day and I torture myself incessantly over and over again. Can you tell me how many carbs to eat to fix that? (laughs) 
it's it, it doesn't make any sense. An analogy I gave in a YouTube video. I hope I'm not getting us too far off track, but it's kind of like you get up every morning. What if you do? Do you have kids, Michael? I do. We I have two, a uh, 14-year-old and a 13-year-old. Okay, so let's take your kids back to like five years old, and you get up maybe four years old, and you get up every morning. Every morning, you walk up to your kid, you look at your kid, and you go, "You just disgust me." I mean, I am thoroughly disgusted with you. You, when I, when I were around other kids, all I can ever think about is how you're never going to be as good as those other kids. I don't even think you can change. You're nothing but a disappointment. What would happen to that kid? That kid would be destroyed. Absolutely. And you would ruin it. And yet these tools of hate, bitterness, angst, anger, all of that are what women are typically trying to use as their primary tools to create beauty. They look in the mirror and tr- think that they're going to go to war with themselves or hate themselves into something pretty, and it's just wrong. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Um, talk to me about long-term goal setting and what John Medina said and how that ties in. Oh, yeah. John Medina is the author of uh, Brain Rules, and I got, I got he had, had the pleasure, was humbled by the guy. He, he had lunch with me, and uh, I asked him um, – I had this theory that I was kicking around in my head, and I didn't have anybody that could really tell me if it was true or not, but I didn't think that hunter-gatherers had any reason to ever have long-term goals, so I didn't think that we had, we were hardwired for long-term goal setting. And so I you know, I said, look, John, when, you, when we were hunter-gatherers, there wouldn't have been anything to save, wouldn't have been anything to lose like body fat. There wasn't you – know, you, you could say I wanted to be a better hunter, but that wouldn't have involved saying you know, I want to shoot a group of arrows this big by May 2nd of next year. You know what I mean? It was like you, you just went out and did these things. So are we hardwired for long-term goal setting? And he said, no, definitely not. We are hardwired for immediate gratification. That stuff that your parents tell you you're wrong for when you're a kid is all – you're all about immediate gratification. But that's why you're alive. You, you're hungry. Your body's telling you to go find some food. You're tired. Go get some sleep. You're warm. Cool off. You know, it's go fix these problems right now. So the long-term stuff becomes really nebulous. Interesting. Um, I wanted to hit on – you brought it up in the very beginning. The hedonic treadmill, yes. Yeah, that's a term in psychology that basically says that we will always adapt to the things that we pursue that we think are bringing us happiness but are actually only bringing us elation. The way it plays out here is there are many, many women listening to this podcast right now that are saying either consciously or subconsciously, either consciously or subconsciously to themselves that if they lose weight, they will be happy. Mm. And here's the thing. Have you ever been right when you said that before? Nope. Because we've all said it. When I get that job, I will be happy. When I get that relationship, I will be happy. When I pay off my car, I will be happy, whatever. And you did get that job two years ago. Have you been floating around, not touching the ground because you have been delivered unto the land of bliss because you got that? No. You take a lottery winner, somebody in a single wide trailer, and have them win $150 million. All of their psychological measures of happiness settle back to where they were in roughly two months. Mm -hmm. So elation is not happiness. So therefore, you've got to be asking yourself constantly if your motivations are pure when you're saying to yourself, I will be happy when this happens. Now, getting healthier can certainly contribute to a happier life. Mm-hmm. It can allow you to live with more vitality and experience more of your life, be there more for your loved ones. All of these things that do actually contribute to happiness that aren't about elation. When you're there for your loved ones in each individual moment, you keep that 
that foundational happiness at a good level. But that's not this elation of, hooray, this thing just happened. And so that, the, that hedonic treadmill says, you've been wrong every other time you ever said that. Why are you so convinced that this time will be different? Mm, I love that. You know, it's interesting. And, and that really, if we dial in deep enough with that, that really goes to gratitude and really mm. having a rhythm every day where you're grateful for where you are. So you don't beat yourself up. And sometimes when I write in the morning what, what I'm grateful for, it's just that the sun's out or mm -hmm. that I have food on the table. It doesn't need to be these big, giant things. But like you said, elation is not happiness. It and is not. Gratitude puts you in a different mindset. Yeah, and being in this moment, just being mindful enough mindful. to be in this yeah. moment. Stop looking at your past and projecting it onto your future and be, be right now. Absolutely. So you wrote in, in Chapter 7, you wrote about examining the body image and exercise. Can you take us through that? Is it? Can you do that um, on audio? I If I could take you – well, you know, that one, if, if somebody doesn't sit down and do Step 1 – Gotcha. Step two will absolutely not work. There so it's go. probably not. It's probably one where we would be, be betraying one of the most powerful portions of the book for anybody that listens to this and then reads it. But it just let me make the point that people think that step one is the point, because in step one, I'm going to have people sit down yeah. and and analyze the things that they believe have caused their view of their their body. So they're going to write down things like I watched my mom do Weight Watchers. My dad used to call me fat. This boy in school used to pick on me, all that stuff. People get hung up on that step because they think the point. I guess I didn't make it clear enough in the book. The one thing I would I would love to change is to go back and go. I didn't, you're not doing step one in order to examine these things and then find a way to release them. Step two will make it all make sense. But if I tell you what step two is, you will absolutely not get the benefit of it. So follow the instructions. <laughs> Perfect. Um, in chapter nine, you write about attraction. And this is, this is my big pet peeve, and, and I'm sure there, it is for a lot of people. And what you wrote, which I thought was brilliant and 100% on point, it seems to me that most women are getting their definition of beauty from the media. But it's important mm -hmm. to note that the media is trying to sell you things, and it can best accomplish its goals by making you insecure. Right. That is 100%. Talk to me about that. Well, it's interesting to me how much has to be ignored to go down that path. Mm -hmm. So like the typical woman that I work with is going through life looking at all of this stuff in the media. Here's this woman holding this coach handbag. Here's this one driving this Mercedes. Here's all of these things. Here's Jennifer Aniston on Friends. They're looking at all of these things with these blinders onto what's around them. They're going, that is the perfect body. But all you have to do is look around in your real world and think about every single man that you've walked past. I'm talking to heterosexual women. Every single man that you've either walked past or actually known and said, that guy is worthwhile. He's uh, either physically attractive or something about him is attractive. I believe I could be attracted to that man. And then look at the women that they're with. And they're all not, they're all not dating Jennifer Aniston. There's normal women, everyday women in all different shades. Some of them gorgeous, some of them with, you know, maybe not as much natural beauty, but great personalities. Some of them that you're kind of like, how in the world did that even happen? She doesn't, she just seems mean and grumpy, but you see all shades 
of women with the men in the world that you would say are attractive, that you would want to be attractive for. So you have to ignore everything around you in the real world in order to fixate on the stuff that that uh, the media wants to use against you to keep you insecure. So I, I just I just want women to open their eyes when they're in individual moments and look around at what they see in the world around them. And then it also surprises me how many women are with men. How often a woman will be will be telling me about just this whole massive nasty history of of body image stuff and i'll be like so what are your husband oh so you know what about your husband how's he feel oh well he you know he loves me he's he's always been attracted to me but anyway all these other fringe people they you know and we're right back i'm like you did it you are attractive this man this poor man who's been telling you that you are attractive and that he loves you and you're just ignoring him or pretending it's something that he has to say to you because for some reason or another in your marriage vows he told you he, he said you were he would say you were pretty every day you're ignoring the end result of what your attraction was supposed to do which was find you a mate so if you've got a good one, quit worrying about the fringe people. Those pe- it's always the fringe people too. It's it's always the people at the edge of your circle. Mm-hmm. Your friends and family love you anyway. Gain 50 pounds, they might worry about you, but they're not going to stop loving you. So who you're worried about is the person at the next desk or that person that you passed that glanced at you at the grocery store. It's these fringe people that aren't really a part of your life. They're at the edge of the circle. The people that don't really matter, those are the ones that you need so much approval for. And it if you stop and think about it, it doesn't really make sense. It, it is a fundamental difference between between men and women in how they how they perceive themselves. Certainly. And I got right. a, I got a I got a great story for you. It's only me, you, and our uh, four hundred thousand subscribers. Um, I'm in New, <laughs> I'm in I'm in New Jersey, and uh, my wife and I are at the beach with a, a friend of hers, and she is a beautiful woman and she's sitting there and onto the beach walks some dude i am not exaggerating he's 300 pounds he's got a speedo on and yeah. he is he owns it he Love walks on that beach and he's saying to himself i look good uh, and she makes eye contact with him and immediately he puffs up He's walking, and he's thinking, she wants me. She's checking me out. She's yep. checking me out. Yeah. And women don't think that way. Like, that no. that body image is, is so distorted. Yeah, there's nothing that you and I you, you and I get out of the out of the shower every morning and if we glance in the mirror, we are far more likely to flex in the mirror than we are to get bummed out about anything. 100%. And, and then when you show us an ad of some male, you know, some young guy with ripped abs, that is never going to make me think of my own abs. No. I'm not ever going to think about that. But if a and this is another thing like the insecurities have to be sort of owned, but like if a woman is sitting someplace, say in a coffee shop and she overhears a conversation in which a guy says something like, "Wow, so and so's got a a really big butt." This woman is going to – if she's got that insecurity, if she thinks she's overweight, she's going to think about her butt for an extended period of time and feel bad about it, <laughs> whereas you and I are going to be like, well, that guy sounds like a jerk. You know what I mean? Right. It, but but I, the example that I use is these things are only painful if, you, if you're if you owning that insecurity. Like if a guy walked up to your my average client on the street and said, you have really gross wrists, 
She'd be like, okay, you weirdo. You know, like I, she, in that case, she didn't learn anything about herself. She only learned that this guy is an idiot. And it's the same exact thing. If a guy walked up and said, you're fat and ugly, it's the same thing. She still only learned that this guy's an idiot, but that's not how she'll see it because she has that insecurity. She'll own it. She'll take, she'll, those thoughts will be put into her head and she will identify with those thoughts in a way that will make her feel bad for an extended period of time. When really all she learned in that situation is I have stumbled across a jackass. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, when we were first married, my wife and I, she, uh, she's a classically trained pastry chef. So Mm -hmm. she had her own bakery and she could have the best day ever, and then somebody would walk in, usually a dude, and say something like, that's all you got? And that would <laughs> totally crater the day. Totally yeah. crater the day. Like, dude, it was, hun, it was the end of the day. Like, it's no big deal. No. Right. You know, and it's just that, that mindset, which is, which is uh, I wanted to get into the next thing that you talked about. I think they go kind of hand in hand is self-sabotage. Talk to us about that. Man, that one is big. Um, that one is the one where, uh, you know, and things like extrinsic motivations and, and all and everything we've talked about so far sort of plays into this. But there's this the, this idea that you can just do a pro a diet protocol and 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 everything will be fine. And you're if you're not working on those psychological obstacles like this one, basically you're starting at the starting line and running as fast as you can and slamming your head into the same obstacle and then quitting for three weeks and going back to the starting line and doing it again. But this self-sabotage piece is this one that says things like, I don't want to live a restricted life. Life's too short. I need to be able to eat cupcakes or I don't really deserve success or these things are taking away too much time from my family. Or um, a one bite won't hurt. Mm. Or I deserve a treat. That one, the way I handled that one in body beliefs and people, everybody listening to this has said that at one time or another. They're saying, they've said, you've been so good on your diet, you deserve a treat, which is exactly like saying, I've done such an amazing job at cleaning my house. I deserve to throw a big handful of dirt on my living room floor. (laughs) But we don't think these things through. It's just emotional. And if your goals are extrinsic or your motivations are extrinsic, your goals fall away behind this inner voice that's screaming this garbage at you. And so the self-sabotage becomes that you're there's there's this thought process that's starting to happen and it's starting to build. And whatever it is, whatever one of those things I just mentioned that you're fixated on, your brain is fixated on, you start to grow it into a justification for why this was never going to work anyway, or you're not one of those people that gets success or, and you build on that because of these extrinsic motivations. Whereas give you an example of an intrinsic motivation. What if we told you, um, and I don't know if I did this on Rob's podcast, maybe I did, but what if we told you, Michael, that you could only take one shower in the next month? You would be like, okay, that's really going to suck, but you wouldn't say, you know what, if I can only have one, then screw it. It takes 20 showers before everybody likes me. No, that would be the best shower of your life. And then when you go camping and you don't get to shower for a week, you don't, it doesn't take you two weeks to get back on the wagon of showering. Why? Because you're completely intrinsically motivated to do that. So you've never taken a shower on a Monday morning 
because you took one on a Saturday. And you've never taken one on a Monday morning because you're going to take one on a Tuesday. So this this self-sabotage can't happen once these motivations are intrinsic. Once once you are doing this stuff for you, it takes it to a place where every individual decision, why am I eating this meal? Not because, oh, well, I haven't made a mistake in a long time, and if I continue to not make mistakes, then, then my body will look great. No, I'm eating this meal because I'm worth it. This meal because I deserve it. This is healthy. This meal will make me feel good. This is lunch. What happened at breakfast? What's going to happen at dinner? Those are irrelevant. This is me making the best decision that I can in this individual moment as if it's a one-off thing and doesn't matter with any other decision I'm going to make today. I'm only going to make every decision the best that I possibly can when I come to it. Self-sabotage stops that stuff in its tracks. It makes it so that you start coming up with excuses for why the whole big giant event of dieting or trying to to get lifestyle change that will make your body look great. Self-sabotage is the piece you use to open that door and get out of the the wagon, get off the wagon. I love that. Um, The one question that you said to assess your susceptibility to self-sabotage, why then is it reasonable to believe that you can be kind to yourself if you're also someone you don't like, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, I, I could not. If I worked with somebody who I genuinely did not like, I don't necessarily have to be cruel to this person, but I will not just take opportunities whenever they come along to be kind to that person. We do that for people that we like. When, we're, when we see a chance, I mean, you will work with somebody and do what you have to do. But if it's somebody you don't like, you are not going to step up and just take an opportunity. Here is a chance for me to do something nice for you. When you treat yourself like you don't like yourself, how in the world can you possibly make every little one-off decision correctly? You're you're really going to be thinking, what can I get away with? What's the minimal amount I can do here? Mm -hmm. You know, what of this horrible stuff that I have to do in order to look better? Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about locus of control. Okay, um, locus of control, an internal locus of control is when somebody says, I can do this. An external locus of control is when somebody says, well, in in the case of dieting, I'm going to give it a shot, but I'm not 100% sure that I believe that anything will ever really work for me. I've failed so many times in the past, or I generally don't believe I'm good at very many things. That's a really depressing stance, but you know, people that have gone down the road of so many different diets and all the lost and regained weight and they start to believe that nothing will ever really work, that's when they lose they, – they're not really holding the reins anymore. They're going, I'm going to roll the dice on this. They oftentimes expect results to happen really fast, which is sort of a different problem. But when those results don't happen quickly enough for them, they chalk it up to the fact that they're not really people who have control over this type of thing. And it, it that that mentality, if we applied this to like sports mm-hmm. and you said like you're you're getting ready to bet on some sprinters in the Olympics with your betting with your buddy sitting next to you and suddenly you can read the minds of those sprinters and you the guy that you just bet on is going, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I always lose. I like I'm I'm going to lose this one because that's what I do. I'm a terrible sprinter. You're going to be like, I want to change my bet. I don't want to bet on that guy anymore. His attitude is completely wrong. 
And that's what people with an external locus of control are doing as they approach the starting line of something like this. They're already telling themselves, all right, well, I'll give it a shot. But the back of their mind, that inner voice is yelling, this doesn't work for you. What are you doing? Why would you not eat that cheesecake right there when you know this is never going to work? Very true. Let me ask you, Jason, I mean, in all of your coaching in your book, um, what are some of the things that people can do if if they've always been extrinsic in nature? What are some of the things they could do to be more intrinsic? This is probably the toughest part of all of it. But what you need to realize is that you are worth treating well. And the fact that you think you're not treating well, you're not worth being treated well, I mean, is is something that you probably couldn't prove to the rest of us. So you have this internal dialogue where you're going, I don't really deserve results. So I, you know, I don't, I can't just do this for me. There's no part of me that just is worthwhile for, for me to go do this and just enjoy every little step of the way and feel great in my life. I've got to do it to go out and try to get other people to approve of me. If you don't feel like you deserve that mentality, think about how you would sell that in a court of law. You're standing there going, jury, uh, I do not deserve results. You can't stop there. You have to tell everybody why. Well, because I haven't got results in the past. The jury's going to be like, and? Like, that's that's ridiculous. How many times have you tried compared to how many times, you know, we hear the story about Edison and his light bulb? Everybody fails at all kinds of things. But the thing is, is that yeah, – if I could segue this into that that practice example that I gave mm-hmm. on Rob's podcast, yep. when when somebody starts to look at the individual decisions and the benefit of each individual decision, they can move into a a place where long term results make so much more sense because this becomes practice. So what I mean by that is the way most people diet is they treat it like it's a challenge. They, they're like, oh, I gotta do this awful stuff. So I'm going to, to, to get after it and I'm just gonna go as hard as I can. And then their mentality becomes like, I had a client one time get a hold of me and say, um, you know, I, I have a real emotional attachment to cookies. And I, you know, I used to make cookies with my grandmother. I really love cookies. And every time I eat a cookie, I, I fall off the wagon for two or three weeks, maybe longer, and I have a really hard time getting back on. Can you tell me how to avoid cookies? And my answer was, you don't need to avoid cookies. Like That's not your biggest problem. That's a problem for downstream. Your biggest problem is trying to figure out how to change what you do when you do eat a cookie. Because if I try to help you avoid cookies and you go six months without eating a cookie and then you do eat a cookie again and you immediately fall off the wagon, I have failed you. Mm -hmm. What I need to teach you is how to do this like practice. Like let's say you're trying to learn how to play a violin. You pick up that violin, you drag the bows across the strings, and a few notes in, you hit a sour note. Do you throw the violin back in the case, throw it up on the closet shelf, get mad at yourself for three weeks, telling yourself what a horrible violin player you are, and then later on through a bunch of guilt, finally go drag the violin back up? No, you just keep playing because you're doing something you're intrinsically motivated to do, and you're practicing. You're getting better at it. 
So I had this video where I drew out calendars and I put X's on, on all these days where you had, had done everything you were supposed to do. And we said, let's say you go six days and then you eat a cookie and then the next day you're off the wagon for, you know, three weeks and then you finally try again and maybe you have another week of X's. Compare that to a calendar in which you go seven days and then you eat a cookie and then you go, okay, well, that was a mistake. I'm going to get right back on track. And then you go like five days and then you eat a co- another day down and then you go like nine days and then three days. And then at the end, you look at this calendar full of X's and you go, look at all that practice. Look at all of those times I was learning what you know, this diet should feel like when I'm at friend, a friend's house, what happens when I eat this amount of starch and compared to that amount of protein, all of these things that you have to learn over time. So long story short, in order to get from an intrinsic to an extrinsic motivation, I think that people have to start by doing these things in the one decision at a time situation and allow the, the the motivation to slowly change mm. because the motivation just to go to wake up one day and go i love me enough to change for all the right reasons and i don't care about what anybody else thinks about my body that's not going to happen you know you're going to need to 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 meditate and be mindful and get back into this moment stop yourself from those ridiculous things like when you walk into a room of new people and everybody looks at you and you go they all think i'm fat whereas you know people like you and me just go hey look at all these people i get to go meet you know there you've got to stop yourself from doing all of those those little things that would derail you but as far as the application you have to get down to this meal and when you blow it you need to get back on track, which is not giving anybody a license to blow it. It's just saying you can work on putting as much space in between your deviations as you possibly can once you know that every deviation doesn't have you throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely. And having – I've lived that. I was uh, – as my audience know, I was 300 pounds at one time, or I like to say uh, as a good storyteller, I was a biscuit away from 300 pounds. Um, yeah and i just decided intrinsically that i'd had enough we had kids and i wanted to coach and i wanted to play with them i wanted to be there i wanted to be an active participant in their life and i wanted to be healthier for myself so today i walk around somewhere between 190 and 200 pounds but it is it is a decision that finally i said that was enough and yeah, and you look good by accident. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing is that if – I know it sounds counterintuitive, but when a person stops focusing on looking good yeah. and you end up well, – here's an example. I had – I've had clients before, and I talk about this in the book too when I talk about the aesthetic goal conundrum. I've had clients before that came in to me um, and, and wanted me to help them that would basically say – you know, I feel terrible and I've let this body go and I deserve better. Can you show me how to treat my body the way it deserves to be treated? And th- those are like that one in 10 or one in 20. Everybody else is coming in talking about how they're overweight. They don't fit in the pants that they used to wear in high school. They're pinching things on their stomach when they're talking about it. There's desperation in their eyes. Those people typically struggle and fail, but that one in 10 or one in 20 person gets results so fast. And then everybody else is running up to him going, how much weight have you lost? How many pant sizes did you go down? And inevitably, those people will come to me and go, you know, it's crazy. I, 
I can work in my garden all day. I've got all this energy now. I can play with my grandkids or my kids. I, uh, my sex drive is back. I sleep fantastically. All of these amazing things have happened. I mean, all these people want to know is how much weight I've lost. It's crazy. And it's almost frustrating because they're, they, those other people see that as the only reason to do that. But the person who came in loving themselves got the results that everybody else wants, but it was just one thing on a giant list of amazing things that happened. And the fact that those other people are focusing on that one thing is literally stopping them from ever, ever getting results. So it's, it's a perspective shift, and then everything falls into place. Absolutely. Uh, Jason, I'm really cognizant of your time. Uh, I have two more questions. We're good on time? Oh, yeah, I can go all day. Beautiful. <laughs> um, the one that I really loved and really resonated with me was uh, Fat Loss Stages of Change. Uh, psychology professor James Prochaska developed yeah, a yeah. trans-theoretical model. Could you talk about that? I love this. Yeah, so basically the trans-theoretical model of change has been around a long time in psychology, and it, it talks about um, – I don't know that I'm going to be able to name all the stages off the top of my head, but they're they basically like you've got people in pre-contemplation, yep. which would say I am uh, – like we related that to, to like cigarette smokers. Mm -hmm. a, somebody in pre-contemplation isn't even thinking about quitting. It yep. hasn't even crossed their mind yet. Contemplation is somebody going, I'm pretty sure I need to quit. This is something that I've got to get on the agenda. Then preparation is somebody going, okay, I'm going to quit on this day. Maybe I'm going to cut back a little bit before then to try to make it. They're making plans. And then you've got the action step, which is they're literally doing it. And then the next one is maintenance, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So after – once you're done with the uh, the smoking you're the, or the quitting all you've got to do is just continue to be a quitter. You've just got to continue to not put yourself in places where there would be a temptation. But otherwise, it's pretty pretty easy. You know, it's not it, the the real push is over. And then termination is when some it, somebody is literally so far beyond it that it would just never ever be a possibility again. They would never. I don't care if you put them in a room full of smokers. They would only be grossed out and never want to smoke. And so with fat loss, people typically – and with most things, people typically don't get past that action stage. They constantly keep going back into – you know, they tell themselves that they need to lose weight and they're in that contemplation stage and then they step up and they go into the preparation and go, okay, Monday. It's always Monday for some reason. <laughs> and they go to the grocery store and buy the right foods, maybe get a gym membership, whatever, and then they start – and then, you know, a few weeks in, they typically return back to uh, – typically right in the very beginning when they leave action, they go all the way back to pre-contemplation where they tell themselves, screw it. I'm not doing that, <laughs> like, and they, and they like, try, try to ignore the problem. But then they're back in contemplation pretty fast. That's probably just a quick pass through pre-contemplation, pre and then they're, then they're back into a planning stage. Okay, I'm going to do this again, and people cycle through that. For a really, really long time, oftentimes an entire adult life. Uh, we would be remiss if we did not talk about willpower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, willpower is one of those interesting subjects that's very much misunderstood by most people. Mm -hmm. Willpower, willpower is manufactured in our prefrontal cortex. It is the, the, one of the, the latest evolutionary developments in the human brain. The prefrontal cortex is bigger in social creatures. And the reason why we have willpower is basically all 
um, mostly all because of social issues. Like when you come back to camp as a hunter-gatherer and you just gorge yourself at the expense of other people not getting enough food that day, that would be bad. You would be a bad um, cooperator and that would you know and humans being social we benefit from being in groups and learning from each other and helping each other out it would also be a bad idea to have a bad day and come walking into camp and start punching everybody that's a good way to get punched <laughs> you know so you, the the larger the the prefrontal cortex the more we see social creatures so you know in animals like dogs and pack animals and, and you know monkeys and chimps well the thing is, is the mistake that people make is they believe that willpower is um, is sort of subject dependent. Like they will say things like, oh, I just don't have any willpower when it comes to donuts. In reality, you have one pool of willpower that you tap throughout a day and researchers oftentimes uh, relate it to like a muscle. You can You can fatigue it. So that's why you can do things like, you know, try not to spend – uh, your life savings as you walk through a mall and then buy every piece of junk out of the food court. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, we advertisers and researchers and all of this stuff, the people that want you to spend money know how to tax your willpower by making you want things and then having to try to fight that off. But the problem is, is that we use willpower all day. You get out of bed to an alarm clock that takes willpower. You get yourself ready to go to a place that you probably wouldn't go to if you didn't need money. You drive in your car where the guy next to you is texting and nearly runs you off the road, and you've got to try not to you know, follow him home and beat him up. You get to work, and you hang out with people that you might get along with but you don't actually love, but then you've got to not tell your boss that he's a jerk. You know, when he when he does stupid things, you've got to not tell him that that requires willpower throughout the day. You use willpower. You get home. You've had a bad day. It takes willpower to not take that out on your loved ones. And then you eat a tub of ice cream that night. Weird. Mm. You know, of, of course you do, because there's ice cream in your house, first of all. And that's a really awful thing. To, to It's a really awful situation to find yourself in when willpower is low and you wish you wouldn't eat it. And you're, you, you've tapped that willpower tank down to nothing, and now the decisions that directly affect your goals have whatever willpower is left to get you through to bedtime. And so um, we, we have to set ourselves up for situations in which we can spare as much willpower as we possibly can. Yeah, I love, I love that. It's your, your writing um, on that was, was brilliant and really – helps to hammer the point for for me and and for our tribe um i want to thank you so much for being on the show today can you tell people where they can find you in the world and where they can pick up the book jason absolutely pretty much everything i do is uh is at altshiftdiet.com body beliefs is the hard copies are on amazon the ebook is on my site um, you can get everything there. Alt shift, our alt shift lift, which is our lifting protocol, our exercise protocol, uh, our cookbook. Um, the 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 thing that I could I would encourage people to do the most if you're if you like my work is just go to my website and get on my email list. I don't send out spam, but that is how I communicate with people. The majority of the emails I send out are just 
advice or me talking about one of these subjects that we've talked about today, but then you'll also hear about anything new that we're doing. Uh, we've got a coaching protocol right now called Alt-Shift Activate that we've been doing. It's a six-week protocol, and we're in our first one right now, and it's been a huge success, so I'm going to continue doing that, and it's all of this type of coaching every single day for six weeks. And then I have a podcast, of course. You can find that um, on uh, on iTunes or Stitcher. It's the Alt-Shift Podcast, and um, I think that probably sums it up. I'm probably missing a few things, but that's good enough. Beautiful. I will have all of that information in the show notes for folks. I greatly appreciate you taking your time to share with our with our tribe. Um, it means a lot to me, and uh, mm. I look forward to seeing what the future holds. Um, this is really, uh, folks, you got to go out and get this book. I, I We've talked for 45 minutes, and <laughs> I haven't covered that much that's in the book. It was so power-packed. Unbelievable. Go out and get it. Again, Body Beliefs, Women, Weight Loss, and Happiness. And the author is Jason Seib. That's S-E-I-B. So thank, thank you, you so much. Oh, my pleasure, Jason. Really, my pleasure. Uh, folks, if you like what you heard, please go to iTunes and leave a review. It helps us to help you and helps people find us. So I want to say thanks again to Jason. Have a good thank day. Thank you. Take care, people. All right. Ciao. Take care.